0: We read, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Now, later on in the chapter, we would read how he does go to Bethel, he builds the altar, he pours oil on it again, and God reaffirms the promises to him, and it's all been renewed and restored. Bethel is so important because it's house of God. That's what it means, house of God. And if you recall, when he fled from Esau, his brother, no record of him having a relationship with the Lord prior to that, but running from the death threat from his brother Esau, it is there where he used a rock for a pillow and slept, and the vision came to him in the dream of the angels ascending and descending from heaven upon him, and he woke up and said, God is in this place, because in that dream, God spoke to him and affirmed to him the promises that he had made to Abraham, his grandfather, to Isaac, his father, that were now his promises, and we saw that when he came back to the promised land 20 years later, with his father-in-law and Uncle Laban on his, hot on his tail, that God affirmed to him that he was with him. God told him, go back to the promised land now, so God spoke to him, and it was there at in the mountains of Gilead, where he built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed to the Lord. We just saw that recently. And then he wrestled with God, came back to the land, and built an altar as well. He built an altar in the land when he settled in the land. So we see the pattern of worship. We also see that he cried out to the Lord in prayer. Before he wrestled with God, we see the first record of his prayer, crying out to the Lord for deliverance. This is the panoramic of this man's life up to this point in time. So he's got adult children, all these factors, and then here, yet again, in the context, he does not initiate the conversation with God. Yet again, just like when he was getting the evil eye from his brother, the brother-in-laws in the house of Laban, God spoke to him there when he said, now you need to leave Padam around Syria and go back to the promised land. So even so here, when he's older, And more seasoned in life and farther down the road. God speaks to him again. God initiates the conversation. God initiates the action. Clearly, definitively tells him what he needs to do. And he tells him, go back to Bethel. Which really is like saying, hey, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Because Bethel for Jacob is the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Go back to where it all began between you and me go back to where I came to you in the dream and you confess me, I affirm my promises to you in the dream, you woke up and said, God is in this place, you consecrated the place and you confessed faith in me and you made a vow to me that you would acknowledge me as I took care of you. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning when you didn't have a wife and you didn't have any children. Go back to the beginning when you're fearful for your life when your brother Esau was going to kill you. Go back to the beginning when you trusted in yourself, when you had confidence in stealing the birthright from Esau and deceiving your father to get the blessings, when in fact all those things were intended for you. Go back to the beginning where I met you because you were like this before I spoke to you at Bethel in the dream and revealed myself to you. But then we met on this night in this place and then we had a relationship. And then after that, you had a life where I saw everything your uncle Laban did to you, contrary to you, and I saw the losses that you took in faithful service to him and how you gave that to me. And then I took you forward from that. And I protect you from Laban. I, I brought the dream to him where I told him, don't you mess with Jacob, speak good or evil. Go back to the beginning where it all began. When I was speaking with my sister recently, this last week, she, she's a, she likes Greg Laurie. She follows Greg Laurie and you know, she supports Harvest Ministries, as do we, so it's pretty cool. But she was terrified that when she came here Tuesday night, I was going to make her share her testimony. Yeah, you know, like, but you know, when you're involved in recovery groups and stuff, you have to kind of get up and say stuff anyway. So you kind of learn how like, hi, I'm, you know, Bruce, and uh, you know, Finding Nemo, if you caught that one. But like, you have to, you know, and, and so you're used to that. But Barbie's like, oh, Joe, like I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. If you need me to speak, I'm like, really? Yeah. And she was yes. She goes, I've learned from Greg Laurie how to share my testimony. Great, because that's I learned that too, years ago. She goes, oh, before, my life before, then how it happened, and then my life since then. Said, Very good, Barbie. And, you know, we learned from Greg Laurie you should have a one-minute version of that, a five-minute version, and the we're eating dinner in a French restaurant for two-hour version, okay? So this is really cool, because... It's a testimony, and the testimony is your life before Christ, how you came to Christ, and your life after Christ and what he's done in your life. And so that's very similar to Jacob here. God's like, hey, back to the beginning. You're afraid that you're going to die. You're afraid your family's going to die, and that somehow my promises are broken off because of your ineptitude or... We don't even say ineptitude? aptitude. We don't even know what God thinks of the Dinah incident. There's no God never speaks like, "Hey, these guys—they had coming to them. They raped your sister, or your sons are violent bad guys, and they wiped out—they're like gangsters, and they wiped out people like tit for tat or whatever." We don't. God never comments on that. We only know that Jacob's terrified for his life and is really upset with his family, his adult children, when there's nothing new under the sun with that, and he's—he's he's like, "Ha." Ah! And it's at that point, he doesn't cry out to the Lord, but God comes to him and says, and when he says, go back to Bethel, he's saying, let's go back to the beginning. Because that beginning of the house of God is a distinction where he was this way and, knew, and then had the encounter with the Lord and was that way. All those growth experiences that he had, wrestling with God, the name change, all that, it all follows that, but it's going back to the beginning. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus Christ Is speaking to the seven churches of Asia. The one church that looks like it has it most together of all the churches is the church of Ephesus. They look on the outside they all together. They've got, if you could sort of use modern terms, they're so sound in their Bible teaching. Let's be honest, they were verse by verse. They were verse by verse ministry. The Ephesians, they were sound in doctrine. They knew the truth. They could defend the truth. Any world religion, pagan beliefs that came to Ephesus, those guys, those leaders, they could set them straight. They had, all, they had it. They had maybe a Bible college of some sort. They, they just had it all together, and they knew they had it all together. And they're actually kind of prideful in that. But when Jesus spoke to that church, he says, this I have against you. You've left your first love. And that church of Ephesus that Paul the Apostle planted in the book of Acts that was so fruitful and so dynamic where they burned the books and all the enthusiasm when they came to faith, that same church of Ephesus that Paul wrote to, six chapters, three about the rich things of God that they could comprehend what God's done for us and the application of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, what we do in response, chapters four through six, all that had already happened. And then, of course, Timothy had been left there to be their pastor, which is the context of the pastoral epistles to Timothy. They had had Paul and then they had Timothy. They knew the truth. But then a decade or so goes by and it's the end of the apostolic age and the last word that we see on Ephesus is you've left your first love. And he says, return and go back to your first love. He says, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning when you turn from evil things, that you burn the books that were contrary to me. When you were passionate for me, that you were on fire for me, and you, you lived a vibrant life with me, when it was simple, there was me, I was your king, and life was simple and it wasn't complicated with flowcharts of, of theology and orthodoxy or things that made you dry and took you from relationship to religion. Repent, he said to the Church of Ephesus, and come back to your first love. Come back to relationship. And it is interesting in the human experience in the body of Christ for believers and followers of Christ, as well as philosophies and human religion and all these different things that people follow, because we're naturally in our flesh we're set towards sin, that whether we have some reformed belief system that we follow or we're truly transformed by the second birth through faith in Jesus Christ, left to ourselves without being built up, we're going to gravitate back toward the rut that we came out of. So people that are sometimes excited about being a Jehovah's Witness, they fade away if, if whatever that's a whole nother topic, but they, they'll fade away. The, the Mormons have a term for Mormons that re- fall away. They're called Jack Mormons. They fade away. There's apostate Catholics. There are people that embrace certain philosophies and they renounce those philosophies. Look at the Hari Krishnas and all that during the hippie days of the 60s. And some people that were Hari Krishnas just renounce all their Eastern mysticism eventually. In other words, what I'm saying is that we, without pressing on with focus, we'll just drift back to sons of Adam and daughters of even sin. And of course, The world is groping in the dark without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to do it in the first place. So we confess, the Church of Jesus Christ, that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things are new. So there's that enthusiasm, excitement when you see people like Harvest Crusade sobbing and they're all excited, and all those Billy Graham movies back in the day where it would be the storyline of someone getting saved and super excited. And then all these things happen with life because life keeps happening. People get married, people get divorced. Kids grow up and make good decisions. Kids grow up and make bad decisions. Kids don't grow up and they die on the journey. There's all kinds of things that happen where life gets messy. You can pay your bills and you can't pay your bills. Your company's thriving and then Toys R Us goes out of business. You're no longer a manager and you can't get a job because you're in your 50s and no one's hiring older people. They only go for young people. There's all kinds of things that happen with life. Like Jacob here. You can just feel overwhelmed, like, especially with adult kids. You're like, you know, that's not a good decision. Yeah, okay, Dad. That's... And then after a while you feel like bother all like Winnie the Pooh. You just feel like you can't do it. And, and and sometimes parents just say, You know what? I'm gonna pray for you, which actually is the wisest thing to do anyways. But if we look at Jacob's situation here, he's got these adult kids, all these things have happened it's like, I'm gonna die. What can I do? My life is overwhelming right now. And isn't it nice to know that God comes to him in that situation and he engages him? And what does he say? Go back to the beginning. You've made this very complicated. Go back to the relationship, like Jesus said to the church of Ephesus. You know how many times throughout the Bible, God's like, it's always about restoration, renewal, and revival. Church history's revivals, which is basically God just saying, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the relationship. It starts with the relationship at the point of contact of faith. And all that life will bring, good, bad, and ugly, beautiful, and anything that, in the human experience, when you get to the end of it, it's you and Jesus. That's exactly how the relationship starts it and the relationship ends it. And it gets muddled and cloudy through religion, dynamics of the human experience, bills that can't be paid, creditors, new bosses, old bosses. You wreck your life like my sister on the streets for five years, drugs and alcohol. But you got to start somewhere. Remember what I told her? Almost three mothers, this mother's day will be three years. I said, the next thing in your life is to go to rehab and finish it. And with that clear mind, the Lord will restore those things to you that you've lost. And He did, and He has. And she's down there at DMV today getting the paperwork to have her driver's license restored after seven years of not driving. That's good, because it's all a restoration. Like, you, I mean, you come back into society. You, you got a job. You show up on time. You get X amount of money. You pay your bills, and you live under your you live within your means. And, and she was so good at that before. The, the pain meds and the drugs and the alcohol is just once thriving 401k all this stuff but like you, you rebuild your life with the lord and you go forward so often god has to take us back to the beginning but just go back to the beginning you know communion's like that jesus says do this in remembrance of me 12, 12 times a year on saturday once every month we get a chance to go back to the beginning jesus said do this in remembrance of me every time we take communion here individually or in a marriage or in a family in a collectively as a church family or with visiting believers from other churches, Jesus has taken us back to the beginning. He has taken us back to Bethel. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not religion. It's not what you've been doing, a good week, a bad week, a good month, a bad month, quarterly profits, losses, or anything like that. Conversations you should have walked away from but didn't, or conversations you did and good for you. It, 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 all that is, you know what? All that's like the back of a baseball card. Statistics that don't mean anything. This table says go back to the beginning, and it's about me. And he wants us to be reminded on a regular basis to go back to the beginning, to be reminded. Do this in remembrance of me. Go back to the beginning. Taking the complex and making it simple. All the noise, simplifying it. You and the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Just go back to the beginning. And it'll still, you know, in athletics, we'd say you gotta slow the game down. Playoff games, different things, like you gotta slow it down, the adrenaline. I tell people, you know, when competing at the highest level in surfing, when I'd be in the pipe masters, it's like you're about to tee off at Augusta for the masters. I mean, it is so intense. The adrenaline is so high, plus at masters, you're not 20 foot waves trying to kill you. It's a, it's a par three, just put it on the green, close to the cup. Yeah, I'd be in the channel, pipe pipeline, like 15, 20 foot waves, the adrenaline would be so hot, so fast, so insane. I'd have to, you just have to bring it down, slow it down, just like a starting pitcher in game seven. You got, you got to slow it down. you got to simplify things. you got to simplify things. And the devil knows if he can make it super loud and so- all these distractions and all these things that distract us and all this noise, that will, it, it'll just speed up the game and we're just, we're just overwhelmed. And the Lord wants us to simplify, keep it simple. One of the beautiful things about being in ministry as a pastor full time, you do enough weddings and en- enough funerals that it simplifies your life on a regular basis. When parents are grieving over a seven-year-old dying and they're banging on the coffin graveside, you don't forget stuff like that. That'll give you perspective on everything. And those of you experienced great grief and sorrow, you know it. it's like, you're like. You know, if I live, I live; I die, I die. If we lose it, we lose it; if we keep it, we keep it. If they cause a problem, they cause a problem. What are you going to do? You got to simplify it. Either, and I shared even last the other night with a number of relatives and my 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 godmother. Uh, I literally shared like, I'm trusting Jesus to raise me from the grave. So everything I face between now and then, He's got it. We're trusting Jesus to raise us from the grave. I was yet looking at another grave, my mom's grave on Thursday. We're trusting Jesus to raise us from the grave, and we can trust him. And there's a simplification of things when we're trusting in the Lord, and we're like, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Wait a second. Go back to Bethel. God loves you, and we love him because he first loved us. Simplify. You go back to Bethel, the place of simple worship. It was so simple that it's a testimony track with Greg glory. It was this, this is what happened, now it's been that. Maybe we need to simplify. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. At some point, I'm sure you will. Then he said, said, go back to Bethel, make the altar, go right back to where it all began. Then he said, put away those things among you. So the putting away is an interesting phrase because in the New Testament, if we talk about the Old Testament being a shadow of things to come, well, in the New Testament, in those epistles, we see this phrase fairly often, put away or put off. Put off this and put on that. and Put away lying, deceit, and all these different things. So put away. And a lot of times going forward with the Lord, as much as what we're seeking is what we're releasing. I remember when I was coaching the Chilean team, my good friend Manuel Selman, he was our team captain for Chile. It's a great career. Really neat guy. A thinker. And he's like so close to being right there. He's top 100 in the world. And just the difference between 100 and Top 10 on the World Surf Tour, it's it's so minor. They're all so good, like golfers on the PGA. They're, they're all good. They can all shoot a 64 if you follow me. Like They're all really good. So it's little things. I said, you know, Manuel, I think we need to consider is ask yourself this. What one thing can I do that will increase my value and my ability and my equity by 10%? What one thing can I add? I'm going to do this self-help course or do this or that. But then we need to ask ourselves one other thing, Manuel. What one thing can I remove from my life that will improve my career by 10%? And if you can figure out what to add, one thing, and what to subtract, one thing, if they're both values, 10%, you will improve yourself by 20% in your career. And it's true. Recognizing what doesn't belong what is a distraction, what needs to be put away. Now, the context here, of course, is gods, false gods and uh, household things. Now, contextually, that presents some problems because, remember, Rachel, who Jacob loved dearly, that's who he worked seven years, and it was as if no time at all to marry her, she stole her dad's household gods, Laban's, unbeknownst to Jacob. And so as they came in the promised land, they bought some stuff in there they shouldn't have been bringing in, and she had those gods. And to what extent those guys affected the home the marriage the kids multiple wives and all that kind of stuff we just don't know other than the context tells us that they all had stuff that they had to turn in and give up and again speaking from a parental standpoint when your parents it's tricky because you want to have a super harsh legalistic house where there's no joy of the lord and god gives us freedom you can't have this controlled environment of an artificial society of perfection in the home because it doesn't work that way because then they go to work for the first day at Starbucks and they get shredded and they don't know how to stand it and they want to call mommy or dad to come bail them out because they don't know how to handle that stuff you gotta you got to give them incremental freedom but in giving children as they grow up incremental freedom there are there's things you have to decide you have to decide we're going let them spend the night at people's houses at this age and do we trust these people because they don't always go the way you think and just because You think those people are solid with the Lord doesn't mean they are. We learned that lesson. You think this is the standard in our home. Sure, it's the standard in their home. It may not be the standard in their home. When in doubt, hold it out. But still, you know, they're going to go to the prom at Edison or Mesa or Calvary Chapel and just, if they make the right decisions, you've taught them to make the right decisions, you've given them incremental freedom. It's it's just, it's got to play out. But sometimes when that happens, there's decisions that are tough ones, and they can be life-changing and far-reaching, like your adult children having idols and false gods in the household, in their tent. It might not be in your tent, but it's in their tent. And he's like, sometimes when you, 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 you go like this with little kids, you're like, okay, you can have a Barbie doll at five or whatever. You're just like, enough is enough, right? Because you know, kids learn right away. Like You throw a big enough strike, you, it's a war of attrition sometimes with parenting. you're like, okay. But some things are, you know, are not to be compromised. Just some things are standards that you just don't ever want to capitulate in your home. And certainly, false gods are at the top of the list. And they come in many different forms and different ways. And it's just, it's hard sometimes. It's hard when your smart aleck kids think they know more than you and more than the living God. But you got to remember Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God's put eternity in our hearts. And there's no one spouting some false worldview or false world religion that doesn't know deep down in their heart that they're fighting against the living God. God has put eternity in our hearts. I don't believe in God. Actually, you do. Because even Voltaire, who fought God at the very end of his last breath of his life, said, The God I've denied and fought my entire life. Now I now must face him. God's put eternity in our hearts. But it's tough when your kids make bad decisions. But, you know, things do have a way of playing out. So you just keep praying and you just keep committing them to the Lord. The, the jury's still out on everything with your adult kids, by the way, in, in most cases. Because things work together for good to those who love God. So eventually they just surrender to the Lord and they love God. Then it'll all work together for good. And you'll see God redeem those things. So we don't lose heart. Faith, hope, and love. And love never fails. And that's why it's the greatest. So we love. But there comes a point sometimes, like Jacob, where you're like, You know what? I'm the patriarch of this house. This estate is in my name. And you might be the first trustee. But I'm the patriarch. And this is the standard. So this is the way it's going to be. Bring me the false gods. If you know you're stepping into eternity tomorrow, what would you clean out today? That's really what it brings to an application. When God says, hey, you come back here, you and me one-on-one. And bring the family. Well, if you're showing up at Pastor Chuck's house for dinner 10 years ago. Or he's going to take a ride in your car. You'd set the radio dials and make sure it's K-Wave and the fish and, you know, Air One or something, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's silly little things that we can use. My kids always make fun of me for 9-11. Because when 9-11 happened, I threw everything away that I thought I could possibly offend the Lord. They remember the tragedy of it all. But they remember Dad going, like, the Lord's coming. And they, it's, it's such a vivid memory. It was like a trial run for stepping into eternity. Sometimes you need to throw stuff away. Less is more. Contextually, we see in it, it's, it's idolatry and stuff like that. But sometimes it's a simplification again of your life, like removing things that are just too much, that don't bear good fruit. They're distractions. They're frustrating, and they're not the Lord. They're striving, and it's contentious, and it's, it's like it causes strain in the marriage. It causes uh, competition for the value of your time every day. It causes a a distinction and is a division of affection within your heart. And finally, you just got to say, you know what? I'm, I'm done with it. I'm letting go of this. I just can't. It doesn't necessarily have to be false gods or idols or even sin. When the parable of the sowers was taught by Jesus, he talked about the cares of this life, distracting and choking out the good seed that it never even produces a crop. That's not necessarily sin. It's just distractions from worldly things in the parable of the soils that Jesus taught. Less is more. When LSU won the national championship in football last week, I was quite impressed by how they did it. But one thing that I remembered was their coach, Ed, Ed Orojan, when he was at USC and then they let him go and he went to LSU. He turned LSU around pretty quickly. And I'll never forget an interview I saw with him because at the time I was coaching the Olympic team, so I was very interested in coaching and culture. And I said, Ed, what would you do to turn around LSU football? And he said, I removed 80% of the playbook. I was like, hey, less is more. Quality over quantity. He said I removed 80% of the playbook. It was just too complicated. It was just too much. I simplified the playbook. I took out 80% of this big, thick book that no one could remember those plays, and I kept 20% that was good. Less is more, and we became become more efficient. And then four years later, they're national champions. No one's going to reference that interview years ago, but I remember it. Less is more. Simplification, going back to Bethel as much as anything else, is simplification of your life, your relationship with the Lord, and removing distractions, frustrations, and things that take away from the overall consecration and commitment of our lives to be serving the Lord as best we can, as best we know how, with the value of the time that we have today. So put away. There's things to put away. I have to just be honest. There's things I think I, every year, I'm like, you know what? I need to put this away. I need to let that go. As much as there's things to seek after the Lord for, there are things where God just says, let that go. Just put that away. Change your garment. Purify yourself. It's done. That's done. You're going to step into eternity before you know it. And. All these things that we carry that are just distractions, we need to put them away. We need perspective. Bethel gives us perspective. The renewal of the foundation with the Lord. And then the last thing we see here where he says, and I, verse 3, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. The beauty about going back to Bethel, and if if you caught Scott Cunningham's last song, it was like right into this text. Your goodness is running after me. When you go back to Bethel and you're brought back to the basic simplicity of your faith with the Lord and all the complex things are removed and all the distractions are removed, it's you and the Lord and the people you love and the things that matter. And that's all there is to it. And you, you live for the Lord. If, I, if you die, you die for the Lord. It's like Paul said to the Philippians, if I live, to live as Christ, to die is gain. It just becomes so simple when you don't have all the distractions. Life with the Lord is meant to be a basic mathematical equation, pluses and minuses and multiplication. Because you see all that in the book of Acts adding, subtracting, multiplying. But what we so often do is we make it like this chalkboard in a lecture hall of advanced mathematics. It's just it's so complicated that we, we, we just create these Rubik's Cube equations in our mind of fear of the unknown. And what if, and, uh, and what about that? And your goodness is running after me, and all my life you've been faithful. And so really the end result of rebooting and going back to square one is to be reminded what Jacob says here at the altar, he answered me in the day of my distress and God has answered every one of us in the day of our distress and he's there for every one of us in our day of distress that comes forward in the future. And he's been with me in the way which I have gone. And he has been with us in the way. As much as we know and think he's been with us in the way, how much more has he been with us in the way that we can't even think of and comprehend? It's beyond us. And it's to take him all eternity to reveal the glory of his grace to us, as it says in Ephesians. And in understanding his grace, we're going to see how much more he was with us than we even think. For every time we thought God did something special for you, how many times did he do things special for you and I that we are not even aware of? Bethel takes us back to realizing he answered us when we cried out to him and he has been with us in the way. Because, of course, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, when I go back to Carlsbad and go down to Carlsbad, which I frequently do, I'm always reflective of God's faithfulness to me as a teenager. Between turning 12 in Carlsbad and growing up, sixth grade through my senior year of high school, which I wasn't in school, but that age range was all in Carlsbad, St. Patrick's, Church, the only church I went to, Um, continuation high school, at Tamarack Beach, dreaming of being a pipe master's champion, thinking of Jerry Lopez, that I could be like Jerry Lopez, and all these things. When I go back to Tamarack, about six months ago, it was actually Father's Day uh, that week, I picked up my dad at the assisted living home there in La Costa, and we we drove back to our house in Carlsbad, Westwood Drive, just look at the house. You know, it looks a little different, of course. We sold the house in 79, so it's been a long time since we lived there. But it's that timeline. Well, when I went back to Cape Hatter's a couple years ago, went back to Virginia, I went by our old house in 09, where the girls were, where Hannah was three and Leah was one. It all, the house had been painted, looked totally different. You're like, you ever do this, you know what I'm talking about, where you go back you're like, wow, it looks so small, right? Isn't that what they always say? Everything looks smaller when you go back. It's like, it looks so small, but it looks like time just stood still. They just painted the house and. And it, it all looks so different, it, it all looks different. And you go back and you think about, "God, you met us here. Man, the first two years of Virginia were so hard. I had rashes from the stress I was under. I like, Lord, you saw us through that." And then this week, going back to Cleveland I've not been back to Cleveland since Leah was one and a half. We went there in '92 was the last time I was in Cleveland. On Thursday, I was at the house that I basically grew up in as a younger child that I remember most, my grandmother's house, my mom's mom and dad, Coventry Road. And you know, I thought it would be smaller. It still looked big. That, you know, I was talking with my blind cousins, and I'd play hide-and-seek and put things in front of them like some demented person would do. We were laughing about that this this, this, this this week, actually. Yeah, you, you know, like my mom said, you're 10 times worse than the other kid that anyone ever had. Uh, that's why we didn't give you to the nuns. We couldn't put you in Catholic school because the nuns would have killed you and I couldn't do it to them. And she, it sounds like a joke, but it's true. She literally said that and affirmed it this last year of her life. Like, no way, no way. You, just, you don't do that to nuns. You don't send Joe Brand to the nuns. But that house, I remember a lot about that house. It's a, My brother and I are looking at the house I'm like, I, I remember watching... Star Trek with Captain Kirk in this house and you know my cousin Kurt saying what's going on what's going on my blind cousin and he was like what's the monster look like and then I would shake him I got and he'd start chasing me around and stuff. it's all there you know it's in the database it's in the memory base but here's something interesting uh, Katie who's uh, a cousin her mom's my godmother I said, yeah, I want to go back to the Coventry house, and uh, I know that St. Anne's is right next to it, because I remember walking to church with, with the family on, on Sundays. She goes, I don't, I think it's farther than that, like, I, I think, because these are different suburbs, Shaker Heights, Cleveland Heights, she goes, I think, I don't, I don't remember St. Anne's being that close to your mom's house. I'm like, oh, no, it's, it's right there. We got to Coventry Road, there it is, and there's St. Anne's right across the street. It's all there. And when I was looking at St. Anne's, and my brother was there, of course, too, and I'm Barbie wouldn't remember that because that's before her time because she's six years younger than me. But I was like, I so remember coming to this church and believing in God. And I also remember coming to this church and fearing God. I had the fear of God. But I remember coming to that church and believing in God. And going home and having like afternoon food and meal. Because they would always go have a big meal across the street with all the relatives coming over. And like, that's going back to Bethel. And then going to the grave to, to put my mom in the ground that morning where her grandmother's buried, where her brother and sister are buried, both who died before they were 30. And there's Aunt Donnie, who that was her husband who was put in the grave when he was 27. They were married two years. And I thought, there's no Jeremy Camp movie for that. That's just her story and God knows it. And she's in her 80s and her second husband's been great and they've been married 55 years or whatever. But when I pulled up at the cemetery, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is where Donnie buried her husband. My mom's brother's buried here. And she's coming from Columbus to go back to the same spot to bury her sister, who she referred to as sister, my mom, where she buried her husband decades ago. You talk about going back to Bethel? That's going back to Bethel. And then Katie, my blind cousin, that's where her mom is buried. And she's right back there at the same grave marker decades later where she was a kid A blind kid where her mom was buried. That's going back to Bethel. And for me, placing my mom in the ground, that's going back to Bethel. What do we believe? Who are we? What's God doing? And what are we receiving and learning and growing from that? Going back to Bethel is the Lord taking us back to the most basic spot where we're reminded of his faithfulness to us, that his goodness is running after us, before we ever called him, he formed us in the womb and knew us, and he had a plan for us before the dawn of creation. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, and he has predestined us and, according to his foreknowledge and called us to be saved through grace and to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus to be fruitful to the purposes of our life and our timeline. And other generations have come before us, and other generations will probably come after us if the Lord tarries. They certainly will. And God is faithful in every generation. And it was just so simple to to see all that in my own life on Thursday. This is where it began. He took me all the way back to the very beginning of Bethel. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, in Shaker Heights, as was my brother and sister by the same doctor in the same Catholic hospital. I mean, you talk about going back to Bethel, you talk about the text they have. This is our text tonight. He just put me on a plane to Cleveland with my mom's remains to put her in the ground at Bethel. And I'm telling you, I come back from Bethel in my own life, and I'll tell you, and you already know this, but I affirm it tonight as clearly and as definitively as I can. God is faithful. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And he's got the plan, and he's got our back, and we can trust him in every experience. And we don't ever want to be shifted and moved from the relationship to religion. When we sense it, come back to relationship. When it's complicated, simplify it because there's an end of all men. And yet again, I've been reminded of it this week. Only one life soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Keep Bethel at the forefront of your heart, even when you're far from it geographically.